You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 21 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Unicon Johnan and David Anhau. Our guest tonight is Dr. Shane Miller, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology and Middle Eastern Cultures at Mississippi State University. And he knows our favorite fan, Caleb Welch. Uh, thank you for coming on today. Uh, Dr. Miller, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing really, really good. 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 You survive in quarantine in, uh, in Mississippi at this point? Yeah, man. I, I don't know when the last time I got a shower was. I feel like I could probably do like some archaeology seriation of my clothes at this point because uh, they got some age on them and uh, like went on a walk this evening and I realized that like I maybe look like a hobo walking around my nice little middle class neighborhood. But other than that, things are going well. I haven't done laundry since March 15th. I'm pretty sure like it, it's bad. <laughs> and hey, I didn't shower until I smelled. <laughs> it makes me feel like I'm in grad school again in some ways, like just basically holing up and working. And, and so just being like a weird recluse working on archaeology stuff and playing computer games. I feel like I'm 23 again. <laughs> Are you do you feel like you're getting ahead on stuff or are you just kind of? kind of toiling because I, I feel like I have a bunch of stuff that I should be doing, but uh, I'm just dicking around basically mostly. It comes in waves. So here's here's basically from the professor side of it. Here's how I discovered that this whole entire thing has worked out. At first, they were basically like, everybody just hold off. We're going to figure out what's going on. And it's like, sweet, I got a little bit of reprieve. I got an extra week of spring break. And, uh, and, you know, you kind of, you kind of just kind of tinker away on stuff and all everything's like, all right, you're going to put all your classes online. And so it's been a week of like trying to figure out how in the world I'm going to explain principal components to a bunch of people who are math phobic, um, online. <laughs> and I would is, die. Yeah. It's <laughs> the secret is your professors are fucking dying too. And so uh, once we get over that, it's just like, okay, now I can go back to working on my other stuff. And then the administrators finally figure out what they want to do. And they've decided that they, they all want their forms still. And so then they barrage you with all the stuff. They're like, I know that this is a time of crisis, but if you can get the cover of your TPS report in, that would be great. And so it comes in waves. It's like literally watching like wave after wave of people try to figure out. Now I'm starting to get hit with the wave of students who are now freaking out about the end of the semester and are sending me emails about things that could be readily found on the syllabus. So, I mean, it, it's all right. It's, it's all right. Just some uh, clarification for our listeners. We're recording this on uh, April 15th, and this isn't expected to drop till May 11th. So we'll see where the world is in a month from now, hence all the quarantine references. But just to just to get us going, so uh, Dr. Miller, David, to me, compared you uh, as his version of Robro, and that's our cute little nickname for Dr. Eric Robinson and kind of like how he's <laughs> mentored me and says, uh, you know, he has that same relationship. That, uh, <laughs> that he has Robro. With you. 
<laughs> yeah, we, we did. <laughs> yeah, we named him that at uh, Almrock Shelter for uh, Doctor uh, Bob. His Kelly's nickname in my phone is Old Dirty Robinson because he's <laughs> and he's the most red-haired, palest dude. But he's a Wu Tang fan to death. <laughs> yeah, and so uh, David. So like the way David explained to you to me because I've never met you is like, oh, uh, Doctor Miller is. Uh, he, he's my robro. And I was like, oh, okay, I got you. So this is serious. Right. Fair enough. All right. Well, I, you know, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. You know, I can't, I cannot see him the same, but I can totally see it. I can totally see him being like the guy who's like programming like stuff in R with like old dirty bastard bumping in the background. Like just, just feeling like, you know, like this is going to be the hottest code to drop in this year, right here. There's so many collabs going on. Yeah, oh, like man. like sneaking little like bits of like uh, old dirty bastard lyrics into his R code to see if he could still get it published. You know, <laughs> you know, like you know, <laughs> file get oh, period dot dash got your money. Sports flash. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can boy. totally see you oh, do man. that. Oh, oh my god! So just, just gold. Oh boy. man! Everybody's got a grad school friend like that. So everybody, uh, yeah. So yeah, mom is Steve Yurka. Steve Yurka um, at Tennessee. Who all dirty Yurka? Yeah, we call it we, like this dude is just like out of nowhere, just Wu-Tang rhymes. It's like, what is it with archaeologists and the fucking Wu-Tang clan? And like <laughs> out of nowhere, he would be like, just like say like random lyrics. Like I remember one time at a party, he just looked at me dead in the eyes and he, get, he goes, oh my God, what was it? I memorized it because it was so random. It was like, oh my God. I can't remember it off the top of my head now. Um, it's too far into the evening and I've had a couple of drinks, but it was something like Alabama slay quick that David Banner gamma ray shit. And I was like, what did you just say to me, man? Like, that's not what a grown man says to another grown man after a night of drinking and looking <laughs> dead in the eyes. I don't know whether we're going to fight or hug or what. This has got weird. <laughs> Oh my god! Oh that's, my god! This is going so well. Well, uh, <laughs> well. Do you have any like fun uh, David stories from the time that he was an undergrad? Uh, and could you give us a little context? So, like, you were someone who, like, as a professor, you taught David and kind of inspired him into the field. So, could you give us a little context into that? So this actually predates my professor days. So I was still a grad student at uh, Arizona. And so whenever I was at Arizona, um, I still work a lot with my master's advisor, David Anderson. And we gotten some money to look for some sites uh, on the Cumberland River in Nashville. And so um, I was like the field school TA. I was like one of the, for, for Dave. And so Dave had a bunch of his undergrads. I go out there and for whatever reason, that summer was like the hottest damn summer. It was 2012. (laughs) It was like, I lost like a good 20, 30 pounds that summer. And, um, I, I just remember we finally, that memory that stands out to me 
it was probably about the second weekend of the field school. We finally got permission to go out to this place that's right next to a Paleo-Indian site known as Widemeyer in Nashville. It's like the closest like that part of the world had to Blackwater Draw without the mammoths. It's just like this area around a spring where there was a bunch of sites clustered around it. And it the majority of this site got blown out to make duck ponds and there was like a little section of it left and another little section of it went into the adjacent property, which was this like a uh, array of AM radio towers and shortwave radio transmission stuff for some Christian broadcasting stuff like who were pumping stuff the old, all the way to all seeing stuff out in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Like to China, like China, the, 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 the the literal country of China knows about this place and is blocking their signals. So that's like how much volume. <laughs> and like, I remember driving out to this place and driving in between the AM radio towers and I had uh, music going in my truck and I heard something really weird in the background of the music. And I was like, that's really strange. I've never noticed this on this, this, Black Keys album before because I remember it was like Black Keys Rubber Factory. I was like, listen, to that. I was like, man, I got some weird gospel shit in the background of this I never picked up on before. And I like turned it up, turned it down. It didn't stay the same. I finally turned it off and I realized there was so much ambient whatever there that my speakers were picking up for picking it up from it. And it was like some guy talking about Ezekiel or something. I was like, all right, well, you know, this is this is some weird shit. And uh, so David and a bunch of the other students came out to work on this site. I remember the first time I went to go check on David and his unit. I looked up at it. I was like, I can't remember if I was critiquing or saying something. I can't remember what I said to him. He just looked at me like straight at me. He goes, did you say that to me because I'm Jewish? <laughs> <laughs> and oh my, my face just fell. I was like, oh my, oh my God. Like, oh, uh. And then I realized this little son of a bitch <laughs> just totally got me. And it's said, like, if, I, if you find a Clovis point, I'll give you a gold star. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. oh my God. Oh, oh God. Oh. <laughs> so just imagine just trying to get your shit together. You know, it's hot. It's like 8 a.m. You've already sweated through your clothes. And then you're like trying to like, be a responsible TA person. And meanwhile, you're just basically figuring out shit on the fly because the secret to it all is that we're all high functioning fuck ups, but we're still fundamentally fuck ups. <laughs> and like, this, when Kate comes at you with this, they kind of insinuate, you don't even know if he, he insinuated if you were an anti Semite or not. And you're like, I, I don't even know how, how to handle that. <laughs> um, so that was my introduction to David Ian Howe. And then about a week later, he got some gnarly poison ivy because of that unit. And I don't know if that was, if he still holds a grudge against me for that or not. I don't, it was, it was awful. Uh, I was, oh, I was all right from that. I do remember though, the, you remember the pump that we had that we were trying to get pump out from the river so we could water screen, but it yeah, got that- clogged and you were like, try to unclog it. And I was like, 
I don't know how the fuck to do that. <laughs> like, I'm not a mechanic. I'm an undergrad in anthropology. I'm basically the dumbest kid there is. And then we were like, just suck it out. And then I put my mouth on it and tried to suck out this like grimy, disgusting swamp cumber. Like they call it the Scumberland River. The Scumberland. <laughs> suck it out. And then it just blasts all over. And I like choke on this like disgusting Shrek water. And I was like, ah, oh! you left so hard. <laughs> probably joking, but I, I listened to you because you were my leader. <laughs> you probably have hepatitis. Oh my god. So you definitely have hepatitis. <laughs> oh my god. And also, we were supposed to go, me and, remember that kid Hunter and was it Rhett, I think? Mm-hmm. Went in and Fowler, that was his name. And oh, we went Fowler. in. Oh, dirty Fowler. (laughs) And you were like, go chop down, clear a path in this thick bramble to get to the river so we can do some water screening. And we were like, and that's when Rhett got the really bad poison ivy (laughs) to go to the hospital. And then two days later after us, like literally chopping through the jungle like it was the Mayan Yucatan, the guy that worked the Christian radio station was like, I can come out there and hit that with the John Deere if you want. And we were like, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> so Joel Olstein came out there and cleared the path. Yeah, literally. That's what, That was our experience. Oh, Just man. Like Jesus in the Red Sea. And uh, let's see here. So, Jesus, that was fun. But so you were a TA for Dr. Anderson, who's your master's advisor. And this yeah. is while you were a PhD student at uh, Arizona, correct? Correct. And Arizona, for our listeners, is one of like the top archaeology schools in the country, and people stab each other to get in there. So you graduated from the University of Arizona with your PhD in 2014. Mm-hmm. And then how long did it take for you to get a uh, professorship at uh, Mississippi? I defended on a Friday. Nurse to hangover on a Saturday, got on a plane on Sunday and interviewed on Monday for the job at Mississippi State. Like if there was ever a thing, ever an example of thread in the needle, that was it. Like I do not understand how I got that lucky. So it just all kind of kind of worked out that I ended up here. So that was it was it was not like I swear I owe some some serious world karma for that one. I mean, your dissertation committee is like extremely impressive. You have Vance Holiday, Steve Kuhn, Mary Steiner, and you kept David Anderson, David G. Anderson uh, on your committee as well. Like that's extremely impressive. And not to confuse David Anderson with who we had on episode like 13. That's David S. Anderson, but David A. Anderson from uh from Tennessee. I mean, yeah, I mean, your, your educational background is highly impressive. Again, threading the needle. I, I, got, I lucked out and I had good people as professors. That was, I don't know how I got that lucky, but I got really, really lucky. That's awesome, man. So are you in line? Are you a full professor at this point in time? Or are you? No, I just, uh, I just, this year I turned in my tenure packet. And I got my letter saying that the, the university president is supporting me for tenure. So it's at the stage where it's going up to the, the um, IHL, so like the state level folks to, to vote on to get me tenure. So I am literally on the cusp of, of the mythical, magical tenure, for whatever that, that means. 
So that a would T-word. be yeah, the magical T word. And so um, <laughs> that will get me um, to associate professor starting in the fall. So um, that's that's kind of where I'm at right now. So that's it's kind of a, a surreal kind of feeling, you know, because it's like one of those things where everywhere you go, each step of the game, you always have. You guys are familiar, like the imposter syndrome, the grad student inferiority complex. You guys, absolutely, yeah. Oh yeah, if, I bathe in it. If you don't, I'm about to eject out of this damn podcast because you guys. That's, that's <laughs> the only people who don't have that are are assholes. Um, I feel like the only people that don't have it, like actually are imposters. Like that's kind of the thing that I've gravitated towards or need is like everyone who should be there has imposter syndrome and the people that shouldn't be there don't have it. And, uh, it's, you know, interesting dichotomy. Even I feel there are times like talking to Steve Kuhn, I still even think Steve Kuhn has it. And like Steve Kuhn is probably like he's one of these people that like I tell people all the time, like, you know, there's very few people I consider to be like just geniuses. Like you talk to them and you're like that person, that person's at a level that I am just not able to get to just brilliant. Right. And I still think so many times I talking to Steve, I'm like, Oh my God, he's got inferiority complex. This is the smartest dude I think I've ever met in my life. And David Anderson is like, he's the same way. David Anderson always thinks that like, he's just on the verge of being fired. And this dude is just like the encyclopedia of Southeastern archeology. span And so anyways, everybody's got a fury complex. And uh, the point being is like, it's one of those things where I crossing the threshold of like getting tenure, you're like, oh my God, I've been working towards this since I was 18 years old. Like, is this, is this where I can stop maybe feeling like a, like an imposter, but I know as soon as I get over that threshold, I'll be like, Oh my God, what could I be doing with my time? I'm playing <laughs> computer games. I'm such a fuck up. <laughs> you're, not a, you're not a fuck up. And on yeah. that beautiful. And also we're trying to figure out what David Anderson we're talking about here, David, a David S whatever it is, we're going to end this segment and then we're going to go into segment two. So catch us on the Dude. flip side. G Anderson, straight up G. Welcome back to episode 21 of the Life and Roots podcast. We're uh, starting our conversation again with Dr. Shane Miller from uh, Mississippi State. All right. So I think we kind of skipped over it earlier. We normally do it in the first session, but either way, it was a fun conversation. You are from Tennessee, right? And you, that's why you went to UT? That is correct. Yeah. Okay. So... I, I assume you hung out like in the woods a lot in East Tennessee and that's what led you to being into archaeology. Like, do you want to talk about that? So the reason why I hung around in the woods a lot was my old man was a logger. So that's what I did in high school was work with, uh, work with my stepdad. Whenever I wasn't playing sports or after school stuff, he had me working with him logging in the woods, which I feel like was his like grand scheme to make sure that I went to college because, uh, um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do whenever I went to college, but I'm pretty sure that after walk, watching him haul his ass up that mountain every day, and uh, he would basically stop his bulldozer once we got up to the kind of the area where we were working, and he would, and I, I feel like I can say this, he would literally kind of roll a joint, enjoy the silence for like the five minutes before he started raining destruction down into the forest. 
And it was like those five minutes every day I would watch him. I was like, this is the only five minutes of his entire day that he enjoys. And uh, I'm like, man, I don't want to, I don't want to work a job like that. Like, so I don't know what I want to do when I go to college, but I know that I don't want to do this shit. And so I got into college and I realized that there's like basically two things that I really, really enjoy. And that was football and history. And I was like, man, I don't want to be, you know, no offense to high school football coaches teaching history, but I watched my high school football coach teaching history. And I couldn't say that there were a lot of days that I felt like he enjoyed his job. Um, some days he did, but like it was, um, I'm like, I don't know what I want to do. And, and I just so happened to be like an undeclared major and the lady who was in charge of all the undeclared lady, uh, undeclared majors for ETSU, which is where I started out at. Um, she was like, Hey, do you want to, uh, do you want to be my Guinea pig for my graduate class? And I was like, sure. So I literally was advised in front of, as I was at like a college freshman in front of like like 30 master students in education and she made me take all these tests and everything. And she's like, Oh, give me a list of things that you think are interesting. And I laid out the list and she's like, archeology. span She's like, I'm gonna sign you up for an archeology span class. And I'm like, that's cool. Took it. And I was like, this stuff is awesome. Then after that, I transferred to UT because they had um, an anthropology major, really great anthropology program. And just by dumb luck, by the time I was finishing up my, BA is when David Anderson showed up. And so his actual first semester as a professor is when I uh, started grad school at Tennessee. So I was his first, I was his first master student, which is another like right place at the right time that uh, I got to be, have that opportunity. I thought you were one of his undergrads. I didn't know that. Okay. No, I was one of Jan's undergrads. Oh, okay. Dope. Wait, Carlton, did you play high school football too? You're goddamn right I did. Before I became an archaeologist, I was going to be a high school football coach teaching history. Yeah. It sounds like a pattern. (laughs) It's it's an entire thing, man. It's an entire thing. But yeah, so then you did your master's research at Topper, I want to say, right? Correct. Okay. So. Yeah. So (laughs) spill, spill the beans, spill the dish, how I ended up there. So the very first semester of grad school, I took Peopling of the Americas with Dave Anderson. Awesome class, a lot of fun. And at that point in time, I was still one of Yon students. I thought I was going to be looking at like rock shelters on the Cumberland Plateau, looking for like early evidence of independent domestication kind of sites on the, on the Cumberland Plateau. And it just so happened to be in Dave's office and Dave gets a phone call from Al Goodyear. And he's like, Hey, I, I, I need two grad students to help run this part of the, the site where we got this Clovis assemblage or this, these buried Clovis stuff. And, uh, do you have anybody? And I just happened to be in the office, me and Steve Yurka, because we were taking the peopling of the Americas class. Steve knew how to do GIS. I knew how to do um, web pages. Um, this is like back in the day of like having to make, make pages with HTML code, like before WordPress and all that stuff. So um, we were helping Dave with getting his Pibba data set back online after he moved from Tallahassee. And so just dumb luck that me and old Dirty Yurka happened to be in the room. And so we got to go and go down there and work for summer. And then the next summer they're like, Hey, you want to come back and just kind of run shit? And I was like, sure. 
Um, and so I went back and it was me and Ashley Smallwood were basically Doug Sane were the grad students kind of running things at Topper there for a couple of years. And at that point I had a whole entire excavation block that, that I ruled with an iron fist for a summer. And Al was like, Hey, you just want to write this up for a thesis? And I was like, man, this, this is right here staring at it. Why not? And went back and switched advisors to Dave and, I became a Paleo-Indian archaeologist as a result of just sheer dumb luck. I mean, I thought it was interesting, but it was just something that I I, don't, I didn't come out of the womb thinking about fluted points by any means. Um, so kind of just happened to me, I guess. Topper's been reoccupied through most periods of time. You can read a bunch of, 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 of stuff about that. But what makes the Clovis period so interesting about Topper? So... The thing that makes the Clovis occupation of Topper really interesting is that there's only a handful of places in the Southeast that actually have a buried Clovis site. They're rare in the South. And an archeologist named Bob Dunnell a long time ago kind of pointed out that it's just like an older landscape. So you don't really get as many places where you, you can get stuff buried. And even Al, the reason why Al Goodyear was there and that part of South Carolina is because he was looking for a site like Topper that had buried Paleo-Indian stuff. And so, A, you've got the stuff buried. A, it seems to be, or B, it seems to be in really good context. And that was kind of what my thesis was on, was taking that block and making the case that this is stuff that's in good stratigraphic position. Like this is all the tricks that you can employ in a sandy site to kind of make the case that you're not looking at a mixed up assemblage, that you're looking at one discrete component. And the other thing that's baffling about it is the extent of it. It's big. We don't fully know the extent of the Clovis deposits there. We have an idea, but it's huge. It looks like a whole entire area. It's like, I don't know, like I'm trying to think of a good analog for it, but it's just like a bunch of different localities that are all spread around these chert quarries. And so the question is now is like, is this like one big event where a whole bunch of people all came together all at once? Or is it a bunch of sequential small encampments that are just being overprinted and as a palimpsest in this one space? And so it's one of these places where you get you get a, an interesting and still confusing window into the Clovis culture and a place where you don't get very many windows into the Clovis culture. So do you think this is like one of the largest spreads of actual Clovis culture you see, at least in the Southeast, where you're actually having yeah. these like really consistent layers of Clovis, you know, over a large space, which is super interesting because we barely get that, you know, in archaeology. Yeah, it's like... The other place that it kind of reminds me of is the central part of the Tennessee River and the lower Tennessee River. Those two areas, they've got a bunch of just sites on every little levee of the Tennessee River through there. There's like, it feels like there's Paleo-Indian sites that collectors have siphoned the points off of and for like 60 years now. And so it's just like one of these areas in the South that for whatever reason, you get these crazy concentrations of points. And honestly, that was like the, one of the bigger things that I realized going to Arizona was getting into discussions about what that all meant. And you get the people out West who are like, oh, you guys got more points there because you got more people 
uh, running around looking for stuff. And then, you know, the counter argument is, is like, man, in a place like Allendale County, South Carolina, you might, you might have like that county and the county across the river in Georgia, you might have more Clovis points come out of those two counties than entire Western states. And why is that? Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So especially like Ben and Humphreys County and Tennessee and like Limestone, Colbert County and Alabama, they are thick. So yeah, so that's like the, the bomb blast on Dave Anderson's PIBBA maps that have like the huge number of, of points. Those parts of the world I thought were really, really interesting to study. So that kind of what sucked me in and kept me sucked into Paleo Indian archaeology from from my masters. Did you see the map of the coronavirus hotspots that was like literally looked just like the PIDBA one? Yeah, I did. And I <laughs> and then it was literally going through and reading the comments and it was just like and it was the same argument over and over and over again. Oh yeah, is it like was it oh, survey yeah. bias versus like population yeah. size? Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. It, it doesn't it's it's just over and over again. It's the same same argument over and over again. It's like Mary Press Eunice, one of her dissertation articles was about this. You know, I published stuff about this. Briggs Buchanan has published stuff about this. And it goes back to Mike Schott before him published stuff about this. And so it's just like over and over and over again, it's this debate, like how, how much modern sampling bias goes into something like that. And I think that like, when I look at just the Southeast as a unit, like Mary kind of found it overall, like across the country from the Western states to the Eastern states, it seems to be some correlation with population, but then also modern population correlates with precipitation. So like you can literally historically, you know, sustain more people where there's more water because there's more vegetation and there's just, you know, you require water. So there's like a, a correlation there, but like when you zero drill down to just the Southeastern United States, like if it was, it's not like modern population and looking at like things like proxies, like, uh, where there's more archaeological sites have been recorded as like a proxy for research interests, like those are not very good predicting variables for finding Clovis points. So I don't know that those types of questions always caught like made me fascinated. It's kind of like why, why is that? What what's causing this? And so I can blame I can blame that on Dave Anderson for getting that bug in my head early and often. So you alluded to the concentration in the Southeast got you excited or at least interested in archaeology to continue on to Arizona to, mm-hmm. to apply for a PhD program. Um, did you enjoy being at Arizona? And specifically for us, we are both Todd and Bob students. Did you kind of see some of their research overlap or did you interact with Todd at, at Arizona. So Todd actually came and gave a talk at Tennessee. And when he was at, he, it was like some like a uh, visiting lecture series and the central premise of it was, um, demography. And so Todd came and, and did, did a talk on hunter gatherers and demography and people in the Americas and all that stuff. And I was like, man, this dude's cool. Um, he likes the stuff that I like and I'm, I was like, man, what, what about going, going and working, working there? And 
I went and told that to my significant other at the time. And she was like, where, where is he? Uh, Wyoming. And that was a no fly zone. And so uh, she's like, no, you're not, I'm not moving to Wyoming. And so I was like, okay, okay. So I emailed Todd anyways. <laughs> and, uh, and he's like, yeah. Um, he goes, I, I'm, I think at the time I couldn't tell whether he had too many students or something like that, but he's like, Hey, you should look into, uh, going to Arizona and working with Stephen, um, Stephen Mary. And at that point, like I'd been to Arizona before and thought it was an absolutely gorgeous state. I was like, you know what? I'm going to look into, I'm going to look into Arizona. And, uh, Vance Holiday was there who does paleo Indians and you had Steve and Mary who hunter gatherer archeology. span And then, uh, Mark Aldendurfer was there at the time. So he did all kinds of GIS spatial analysis stuff. And so I applied and at the time, whenever I applied and even when I got in, I had no idea like the kind of caliber program that it was. I was totally that clueless again, dumb, dumb luck got in. And then once I got there, I was like, how in the world did I get into this place? Because I am in a room with a bunch of smart people, which means that like, I'm probably the dumbass. like every train needs a caboose and I'm probably that caboose anyway. So I really enjoyed it there. It was a great, it was a great place. And the thing I liked it the best about it was that there was people doing stuff all over the world. So we would take classes and for example, like I remember one day we were, can't remember what the topic was. I think maybe it was like when we took ecological anthropology and Steve Lansing came in and was talking about power laws and nonlinearity and networks and stuff like that. I just remember, I think like, me, Derek, and, and Randy all went back to our various data sets and were like, do, do our data sets do this? Do they conform to those distributions if we start putting stuff on graphs? And just totally nerding out in like the most productive and fun nerdy ways. And so anyway, so I partially went to Arizona because Todd told me to. And when I got there, like Todd was like the rock star who had just left and got a job someplace. And um, they were like, you got to be like Todd. Whenever I took hunter-gatherer archaeology, Steve was like, you know, you know, this is a tough act to follow because because uh, uh, I had a student in here that uh, his term paper for this class, um, he got to publish in current anthropology, no pressure. And uh, we're like, man, fucking Todd. Um, so. <laughs> well, on that note, I think we're going to go ahead and wrap up segment two. Sorry, Todd Cerevel, and uh, we'll be back with uh, part three here in a moment. Stand by. Welcome back to segment three of a Life in Ruins podcast. We're here with Dr. Shane Miller continuing our conversation. Dr. Miller, how do you, David, David, let us know a little, little tidbit about, uh, about things. How do you feel about the Saruti Mastodon site? <laughs> we don't have to do it if you don't want to. <laughs> I firmly, I am of the persuasion that I think that people got into the new world after 15,000, probably after 14. So that's that's where I'm at. I'm, I'm, I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really have a hard time getting there with Saruti. Was that a serious question? Or are you guys just fucking with me? I think kind of both at this point. Um, <laughs> so, like, your your really intense geoarch answer as to how the rocks, like, 
pelted the Mastodon, like really intrigued me when I was in grad school. But then like when that company flew me out there to like do that pilot and I like looked at the, the bones, uh, they're definitely old, but then I like looked at the rocks and I was like, those aren't tools. Like, and the rocks, yeah. like they, they let me see the Mastodon bones and I could touch them, but like the rocks were in a display case and I couldn't like, you know, pick them up and look around and, and see, which I get, but I, I don't know. They, they weren't tools. I can't tell, uh, seriously, I can't tell if you guys are fucking with me or not, but uh, yeah, I can never tell with you guys at all. <laughs> um, so the, the thing, the thing about it is, is like fitting it into like the larger picture. It's like you didn't have people above the Arctic Circle until after 30,000 years. The DNA, it doesn't jive with anything for the DNA. It really, there's so much that doesn't connect with what we know, like the larger picture. It is, it's an outlier. And in grad school, I remember at the University of Tennessee, there was my staff professor his last name was Schmidt hammer and old Schmitty would always say that, uh, if you have an outlier, it's either bad data or it doesn't belong in the population of which you're interested in. And so that's kind of where I'm at with that. It's an outlier. And so whatever that means, it, it doesn't, I, 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 I'm leaning towards it's highly likely that it's bad data and not some form of hominid that's, kicking around like Encino man in Southern California, you know, unbeknownst <laughs> to us in the, in the hundred plus years of North American archeology span that, that somehow this is slipped by us. I, I just, I can't get there. I just can't. So I don't know where to go after Encino man. <laughs> you're getting towards the professorship and you're, you're teaching these mind or uh, meldable students. How do you teach these kind of like, new discoveries that pop up like how how does that fit into your curriculum and how do you deal with questions about that so i i go back so i was lucky one of the one of the many areas that i was kind of lucky was i got to still be at i got to be at arizona when vance haynes is he's still there um there's there's two people that i've ever witnessed in my life that get to go get up every day and go to work and do exactly what they want and that's Vance Haynes and Art Jelinek, the two retired OGs at Arizona. And so I go back to, whenever I have to teach this stuff, I go back to the three criteria of Vance Haynes that he set out in the 70s that are based off of Herzlichka, that are based off of Cuvier, that you need to have something that's either an artifact or um, human remains in good context and a way to date it. And so usually whenever I have like some of these like sites that pop up and I talk about them in intro to archeology span or North American archeology, span I'm like, all right, let's, let's run it through this filter. Like where are the critiques? What is the problem? And usually each pre Clovis site has some issue of one of those three criteria that somebody has a problem with. And so it doesn't necessarily mean that it's like a, a fatal flaw or something like that. But usually the, the critiques come along one of those one of those three lines of critiques or one of those three lines of inquiry. And so that's kind of how I frame it. It's like, all right, so what's going on here? Like why why did somebody write a critique of this? And it's usually one of those three lines. Like going back to like Calico, right? Like the issue is it might be good context, but the question is, is are they really artifacts? Or Sarudi is like are those really 
artifacts and is that an anthropogenic site? So it'd be like criteria number one of Vance Haynes' three criteria. How does Meadowcroft fit into that? True, Meadowcroft. So that one's, you know, as an Eastern archeologist, that one's a hard one. And the reason, if I had to explain that to my students and just, you know, try to be like the guy on a, on a documentary taking the middle ground and trying to do both sides in journalism, I would say it's one of these sites that's in the kind of context that you can control. The people who witnessed the excavation said it was meticulous. The fundamental problem for that one is it's no one denies that they're artifacts. No one denies that the context is good. The question is the dating. So it's criteria number three. And so Vance Haynes argued there might be some kind of problem because you're in the middle of coal country with contamination. And so usually that's, that's again, it comes down to criteria number three. I've, uh, I've visited Meadowcroft because um, they have a whole park, I guess, around it. They have like a prehistoric village. No, it's like a woodland style village set up. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the guy that got me into archaeology, he teaches at Catholic University. I didn't go there. He also taught at the community college I went to, um, Dr. David Clark. And he was uh, mm-hmm. Adavazio's first grad student up at Pitt. Really? And uh, yeah, so he took us out to Meadowcroft to see it. And like, it's a, it's a pretty cool site. I wish uh, Adavazio would, you know, publish on it. It's been almost 60 years since it's been excavated. When I took Paleo Indians with Vance Holiday, that was that was my, you know, the first term paper that I started. I, I started kicking around on was trying to figure out uh, the long chain of publications with Metacroft. And it was like, refer back to previous paper, refer back to previous paper, refer back to previous paper, refer back to previous paper. And there was no... So it's really, really hard to kind of reconstruct a lot of what's going on there because there's no unified report where everything's in there. And it's and I, you know I don't want to cast stones in that regard too because you know I've got I've got gobs of stuff in my lab already that I'm like trying to get <laughs> written up. Like I don't want to act like I've gotten all my homework done and then casting stones the other way at somebody who is trying to write up an entire site is daunting. And so, um, I mean, I'm not going to cast stones that way, but you know, it's one of those things where when you make big claims, you gotta, eventually sometimes you gotta cash that check in publications. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, you guys are, you guys are tested as professors these days to be doing all the research and publishing everything. You know, it's, it's, (laughs) it's a crazy hard place to be in at this point in time because it's but those reports are not the important part you know you have to yeah let's uh, publish articles or so one of the things i really liked about like the south that i like about the southeastern united states as far as doing research is all these big reservoir projects going back to like the 1930s and then again in the 60s 70s and 80s like as part of the finished product, they've, there's all these wonderful monographs with all the data. And so you've got those to kind of begin working with. And then it goes all the way back to C.B. Moore, who published reports on all the stuff that he did um, in the early part of the last century, like with his little riverboat running around, digging up sites right and left. He, he wrote up reports of everything that he did that you could still buy today. And so like there's at least that foundation you can you can build from. And so that's one of the reasons why I like working in the region is you've got that. But the thing about it is it kind of is frustrating now is 
is that you, there's a lot of key sites that are coming out and people are forced to go to the most high impact journal that you can, um, that you can like, it's like the, the, the currency upon which you get tenure. And basically they don't care about monographs of reports. They don't, care about any of that whenever you're going up for tenure. They want to know if you've published in science or nature or PNAS or something like that. And those those articles are short. How many of you guys have gone through the, like the frustrating experience of seeing this big claim about a particular site and then you're reading like, well, this is about 3,000 words and or something like really, really short. And you're like, okay, well, I got to go find the supplemental material for this. And now I got to try and connect the dots between like the original article and the supplemental material and wrap your head around like yes, what was going on in this sure. site. In yeah. Yeah. It's like, you got to try and wrap your head around something three-dimensional, like an archeological site and a couple of disjointed ways. And it's, it's frustrating as I'll get out or maybe I'm just not that damn smart. Oh, maybe other people can do it, but I, I struggle with it. Like, um, and luckily enough, um, like here, like an example of, of this is uh, Paige Latson down in Florida. Um, again, it was, it was a short, there's a book on like the big, uh, excavations that Dunbar and those guys did, but the more recent stuff that got published in science by Halligan, Jesse Halligan at Florida state. Um, the thing I like about, you know, at least being a good citizen in archeology span um, and good citizens is everything that I've been confused about with that site. I've been able to email her and she emails me right back. And she's like, whatever, you know, whatever I question, she's got the data somewhere. And so, um, it's one of these things where, you know, I hope somewhere down the line, they give her the time to actually turn that into a book or some kind of like larger monograph where she can pull together all the things that she'd done. And it'd be great if that actually counted as currency towards tenure requirements, things like that. But that's a battle for above my pay grade. So I guess I normally kind of ask these questions in the, in the later segments, but uh, I guess it's a, it's a twofold question because I think okay. I can, not to throw questions at you, but I mean, I guess that's what a podcast is. Never mind quarantine has gotten to me. So my first question would be, what is your favorite thing about or your favorite aspect about like modern anthropology and archaeology? And then two, what is something that like you'd like to talk about or discuss or like something you'd like to, you know, put out there? Hmm. What is my favorite thing about modern anthropology? Cause you're, you're like super interconnected. You know, all these, like, like the pedigrees of people, like, you know, like the inner, you know, the, all the Ben Forty and stuff, and it, it's super cool to me. So there's a lot of different, whenever I teach theory, I'm like, this isn't like, you're no longer, it's, I don't think it's no longer the world where you have to pick a camp for your theoretical perspective. It's not like you have to make a decision on whether you're like a modernist or a postmodernist or processual or post-processualist. You don't have to decide that I'm going to do evolutionary archaeology or if I'm going to do something that's much more humanities driven. You don't have to basically wrap yourself in the cloak of human behavioral ecology and then uh, rail against everybody else for the way they're doing. It's much more I'm an eclectic discipline now. And 
I think maybe it's because everybody got tired of the theory wars and they're like, whatever, just go answer a good question or ask a good question and go figure out a way to pursue it. And so I really like the eclectic nature of kind of archaeological theory these days. You talk to some some folks and they think it's like the most people are just going out here and doing whatever it is that they're doing. And so back in my day, we had hypotheses and, you know, and it's like, okay, cool. <laughs> um, but I work in a region where I don't want to say it's a it's a hotbed for theory, but I feel like there's a lot of people taking archaeology in a lot of different ways. And it's much more open to experimentation. And I think maybe it's just a little more the ethos of like the Southeastern Archaeology Conference that that allows for that. And so I remember like going and working with Steve and Mary and they were students of Binford and very processual oriented. And somebody like Ken Sassman came out when I was a grad student and we all went to dinner and they had great conversations. And if you know Ken Sassman's work, like Ken Sassman is very much a dirt underneath the fingernails archaeologist, but um, there's also the part of Ken Sassman that gets really, really bored, bored with archaeology as usual and likes to push the envelope. And so I always really liked being in a place that allowed for that kind of experimentation. And so because of that, you know, for me, whenever I look at archaeology, I'll, I'll admit that probably, um, I'm, I'm swear to God, I'm not playing to the home team for all you uh, Wyoming boys, but you know, I've always really liked Bob Kelly's stuff and I really love his new book. I assign it whenever I teach intro to anthropology or intro to archaeology, just because I feel it's better at reaching out than a regular textbook. It's, it's just a well-written story. Like my wife, who's a real estate agent, read it. And it's like, I realized quickly that like I'm her second favorite archaeologist. And uh, after that, <laughs> And, uh, yeah, she told when Bob Kelly came and talked here, she totally fangirled and was up there got his signature on his fifth beginning book. It was pretty great. The thing I liked about that, it was, it's a really, if you get down to it, it's a really eclectic book, man. He tackles all kinds of stuff. He looks at it in the big picture. And for me, like at some point I got all these like working class buddies Right. Like these guys who are doing a little bit of everything in life from the guys I grew up with. Some of them are working on, they work in factories, they work in construction, they do HVAC. Mm-hmm. One of my high school buddies runs a bank. It's like a whole wide swath of, of life from like blue collar, white collar, but a lot of blue collar guys. I want to be able to explain to them what it is that I do and why it matters. And honestly, for me, like, that's kind of more of my interest these days is how do you break through that? And so, I don't know, I've been reading a lot more of like economics literature here the past couple of years. And that was honestly one of the things I worked on in my dissertation was, was like, I realized I know a lot about stone tool economics. I don't really know Jack about like economic economics. And so that's kind of where a lot of my interest has gone these days. I feel like that was really wandering. No, no, no. Yeah. we And we love that just because one of the goals of this podcast is that we're trying to communicate with the public in a way that is digestible for all folks. And I think we're Carlton, David and I are all inspired by Bob Kelly's distilling down of that 
um, into a place that we can we can all consume it. And I'm gonna ask you a question that you should answer honestly. So, if given the chance, would you still choose to live a life in ruins in the southeast, studying Paleo-Indian archaeology? Absolutely. I'm gonna caveat that though, and by saying that um, actually started out at Arizona doing Paleo-Indian archaeology, and I wrote a dissertation on how people went from hunting mammoths and mastodons, presumably, to planting sunflowers 10,000 years later. And so part of that was a little bit of goading from my advisors and thinking eclectically and, and whatnot. But the thing about it is, man, is I, I've got like this crazy tool set now that not a lot of people have and i always tell people like you know maybe it might be hubris on my end but like if you can figure out like how people were living thirteen thousand years ago from some bits of flakes that are lying around on the ground and some make some inferences about that that are on solid ground you can do a lot with that data set and a whole bunch of different fields and i've had some really kind of great experiences um, that not a lot of people can say that they've had. I've got to see some really, really cool stuff. Um, worked at a lot of really neat places with cool people. So I would totally do it all over again. No questions asked, no regrets. Dope. So I would get that tattoo of, that says no regrets. I totally get it. You guys seen this? The bad tattoo? <laughs> well, on that note, uh, thank you for joining us today, Shane. Uh, we really appreciate it. This has been uh, Life in Ruins, episode 21. No regrets. <laughs> we'll see you guys on the next episode. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. Gentlemen, why did paleo Indians keep coming back? to a site along the Savannah River in South Carolina. Was it to uh, suck muck water out of pumps? <laughs> it is not. <laughs> Just to top her off. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> 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 oh boy, thank you, Connor. As oh always. my we god. We're no. out. <laughs>show is produced by the archaeology podcast network chris webster and tristan boyle in reno nevada at the reno collective this has been a presentation of the archaeology podcast network visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com